by the way, it was funny like how the, the scheduling of these interviews works. Uh, two days ago, actually, I published um, an episode with Peter Wust, yes. who I believe you know from yeah, sure. ours. Yeah. And, you know, I'd been preparing my interview with him and suddenly I, you know, checked the references and saw that he had some papers with you together. And I didn't realize at all that there, there was a connection between basically these guests who I had, you know, <laughs> very briefly after each other. And just before that, I talked to Mary Elizabeth Sutherland, who's um, editor at Nature or senior editor at Nature and responsible for the behavioral sciences. And in both of those, you know, I talk, we started talking about music because right, uh, yeah, Mary yeah. Elizabeth uh, was a semi-harpist almost. Yes, I'm happy to talk about music. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'd like. I thought I could, we could start talking about music again because it seemed to me from reading some articles of yours as I've seen here and there and from some interviews that you were quite into music. So maybe... Um, or even your your brothers are both professional musicians. So, yeah. why did you not become a musician? Huh. I was not good. well. It's a good question. I played the mu I played the viola for many many years in 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 an amateur string quartet and in orchestras, and I was on two occasions paid. That's not bad. <laughs> so that's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I played yeah. music all my life, and I never got paid. I think. <laughs> 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 But yeah, how, by the way, I saw that in the in the Two Heads book, you mentioned that you played the viola. And how does one get to play the viola? It seems to me. That... Oh well, no, it's very easy. The reason you get to play the viola, particularly in orchestras, is because there are always too many violins, and there are never enough violas. So you can get a job. You can get a. You can get in there. And also, my story is that, of course, you have to learn to play in the alto clef, which is a little bit weird. And I, I claim that because I'm basically a computer programmer, I was able to do this by realizing that if I pretend I'm playing the violin in the third position and add a sharp, right. it works. <laughs> yeah. By the way, is it, uh, how easy is it going from violin to viola? Is it, is it really confusing because it's, you know, very similar but slightly different or is it, doesn't really make a difference? No, I think it's not. I mean, the, the real professionals usually play both. So I, it's not too difficult. Yeah. Um, okay. But I, I know we, uh, the, what you mean about orchestras not having enough of those. I, I played trumpet and double bass. Yeah, and at yeah. first I played trumpet, and then we had this one piece um, that only was for strings. I said, oh, shall I play double bass? And that they're like, wait a minute, you play double bass? Play double bass, we don't need more trumpets. <laughs> <laughs> and so from then on, I played double bass in that orchestra. But, I mean, did you ever entertain any serious kind of hopes for doing music, or was it... No, no. I mean, my brother Fred was obviously much much better I mean he's a real professional musician and of course my father was semi-professional pianist and he and also the, the sort of research took over and particularly when I got into brain imaging I really well there were two things first of all we used to live south of the river in London and um, I had lots of contacts there, but when we moved north of the river, you, know, you lose all your contacts, basically. So <laughs> it's a different city, right? <laughs> yeah. So that was part of the reason. But also, going to conferences and things, I just didn't have the, couldn't fulfill my obligations properly. Mm, like in terms of practicing and rehearsing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I still, my wife and I still play piano duets. Oh, that's lovely. As long as there's no one there listening, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I've always, uh, I've never, I've always been in the weird position that I, 
even though not knew lots of musicians, I never had anyone around to play duets or duos or whatever, which was always a slight shame. Uh, yeah. So, what kind of stuff would you play? Oh, together? the I mean, basically traditional. I mean, there's a very nice Cherny book of piano duet exercises, which is quite nice. But there's Clementi and there's Mozart. But the, our favourite one is Matthias Scheiber wrote a small number of very easy pieces of piano. Okay. Of foxtrots, blues, and things mm. like yeah. Okay. Uh, have you ever played Ravel's um, Mamea Luai? Oh yes, that, that is, that's a little bit too difficult, I think. Yeah. Okay, but, I guess the first we, movement is. Yes, we certainly little... tried. Yes, we certainly okay. tried. Yeah. Yes, that's uh, that's really nice. And Dolly's sweet, of course, but that's uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in the in the book, you also mentioned that the. Um, uh, one of the conflicts you might have would be not to go to a football game or the opera, but to go decide whether to go to Bach or Stravinsky. I was yeah. curious, which side are you on the on that? Oh well, I know I'm very keen on both. I guess my wife would be slightly more keen on the Bach. Yeah, uh, I see. I see. That's funny. I read that because I read that basically uh, at the same time that I was, uh, you know, interviewing Peter, and we talked about Stravinsky too. This again, this kind of weird parallel. Certainly, when I was sixteen or something, I I went through the whole of the score of the Rite of Spring and sort of wrote out the themes or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I d yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's why my grades weren't good in school because I skipped school and went to the library to borrow scores and read those instead. <laughs> um, but yeah. uh, last question about music: What's so great about Miles Davis's Kind of Blue? Oh, well, I guess that was the time. I mean, again, that was when I was a student, and it was... But, I, I mean, I'm still very fond of it. I, I would find it very difficult to say why, but it's... The... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it's <laughs> difficult to describe why uh, yeah, music yeah, is... Yeah. I guess it just is. Anyway, so I guess uh, I wanted to talk mainly today about uh, your book, Two Heads, where two neuroscientists explore how our brains work with other brains. Um, and related topics. So first, I'm really glad that this is the first time I can talk to a real-life comic book hero, which I guess <laughs> now you can call yourself. Yeah. Uh, Batman, Spider-Man, Chris Frith. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess, yeah, I thought it was really lovely also, like, seeing in a comic book form these people who I've, some of them I've met, most of them I've read of or something like that. It was just yeah, really yeah, lovely. Yeah. Uh, so maybe the first kind of obvious question, uh, why write a comic book? How did this kind of come about? Well, the reason the reason was that we Uta and I were given a prize in Paris called the Jean Nicot Prize, and it comes from the École Normale Supérieure. And you have to basically you have to give four lectures in Paris. And what is slightly odd about this prize is that they won't give you the money until you've signed a contract with MIT Press to write a book. Really? Okay. <laughs> That's a nice prize. Yeah. <laughs> But it was a reasonable amount. And anyway, every so we were living in the middle of Paris, and you have to go from where we were over the river to the Rue Dume, where the École Normale Supérieure is. And the route that we took goes through the Rue Dante, which anybody who's into graphic novels will know is a road in Paris entirely full of shops selling graphic novels. And, of course, the French are much, and the Belgians for that were much more into, into graphic novels. And you, can, you can't just get Spider-Man, you can get, Proust as a graphic novel, at least. Okay. 
How's that? Did you did you read that? Oh, I've never done that. Okay, <laughs> and um, so we thought it would be really much more interesting to write a graphic novel about all this stuff, or at least I mean that's the wrong term to write it in a graphic form. We can't really call it a novel, I suppose, a graphic nonfiction. And the other reason, of course, is that our son Alex is a professional editor for Usborns, who they basically he writes children's science books which are mostly in graphic form, and he basically finds the artists and does the storyboarding and is a keen graphic novel fan. So through him I've read every issue of 2000 AD or something like that. And um, we talked to him and he thought it was a jolly good idea, and we used some of the prize money to get some examples from various possible artists, and we chose Daniel Locke, who is wonderful. And that's how it started off. And it's basically, the work is by Alex and, and Daniel, and the way it's finished up, as you say, we're just the heroes, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole, the way it's done, the, I mean, the way that it's so very biographical is, is due to him, Alex, that is. And we were worried about this, and we said, um, we're not so happy about it being so much about ourselves. And he said, don't worry, that's very standard in graphic novels, and it's fine as long as you come out in a bad light. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's I don't think you do, though. No. I mean, I think it's, uh, as I said, like, it's, it's just, uh, I think it's a lovely book where, yeah. But meanwhile, of course, we had to write the proper text academic book, which we finished at the end of, it was due in June 2016. We finished it at the end of last year, on December, the last day of the year. And because it's an academic book, of course, it got assessed. So we are currently just halfway through revising it. Okay, I was, I was wondering, on, on your website, it said there's the, this other book coming out at some point. And in a sort of way, it's the sort of back, background to the, the comic book version although it actually has much more in it, but it has all... I mean, I think I'm quite pleased that this is one of the first comic books with references, but the academic book will have even more references, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy to me also, like, how much science... You know, I mean, obviously you can only, like, allude to stuff or mention it briefly, you know. I don't know, how, but how many words does each chapter have? Is it, like... In the, in the comic book? Yeah, because... I'm not sure, but it was, yeah. yeah. I was just curious because it's, like... Um, yeah, just like how much science you discuss on, you know, on so few words with like a speech bubble here and there. Well, that's right. But I mean, one of the things that struck us is if you're giving, if you're a, particularly if you're a neuroscientist giving a talk, the vast numbers of PowerPoint or keynote slides with pictures on. So in a sense, we're producing the slides and the bubbles of the talk as well. Oh, okay, that's yeah. interesting. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. And it's very annoying when you write an academic book. I mean, it's not quite as bad as it used to be. You know, you're not allowed to have colour. <laughs> <It's too> <laughs> or it has to go into the middle. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Although your your book has the making up the mind has colour, right? Yes, but again it's tipped into the middle if I remember. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I'm curious, like how was I mean you said that that uh, your son and um Daniel Locke did kind of most of the putting it together with it, but I'm assuming I mean how did it work practically? Did you kind of talk to him about them what the science was or? yes we had a list of the experiments we thought should go in roughly speaking all the topics and then they did them and then we had to check whether they thought we thought it actually correctly said what the science was 
And there's one quite which a bit I quite like was, was about Dean Mobs and the trolley problem, where something we talked about there was an experiment that hasn't actually been done yet. <laughs> Still, I don't know whether he. I mean, it was our idea. I don't know whether he'll take it up or not. But anyway. <laughs> okay. wait, wait. So the ex, I thought the experiment had been done by. Oh, no. um, was a different version. No, it was a twist on it because the idea was that people. You know, what was nice about that experiment was if you asked them hypothetically what they would do, they would say they'd give all the money for the to have the shocks being avoided. But if you did it in real life, as it were, then they would say, oh, well, we'll keep some of the money and, mm-hmm. and they can get, a, you know, we can get a little money and they can get just a little pain. And then the, the, we discussed, and in the other book also, this business about are we basically selfish or are we basically altruistic? And this is, at least in relation to our in-group, and this is something that Uta and I have slightly different opinions of because I am more inclined to think we're basically altruistic and she's more inclined to think that we're basically selfish. But the the experiment was if you did the trolley problem in real life, as it were, and you gave a cognitive load, <laughs> would they become more altruistic or more selfish? Right, so you kind of distract them from, allow, you don't allow them to think about the problem, but kind yeah, of let them exactly. more, respond more intuitively. Yeah. And I did. we did that with my friend um, Masahiko Haruno in Japan, and where we were using the, I can't remember, the dictator game, or one, or one of those games. And there we found that if we distracted people, the pro-social people became more pro-social, and the competitive people became more competitive. Right. Huh. So, like deliberation makes everyone slightly more similar, almost. Or no, that's pulling them apart in this case. They, so the pro-social become more pro-social. Uh, but uh, sorry, I meant deliberation makes them also right because yes, if yes, they're distracted, yes. then yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, yeah, yes, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's funny that you mention um, Haruno because. You know, it's funny, like I'd been like reading some of your papers and the books in preparation, that kind of stuff. And then I, com- I completely like realized just today, basically, that one of the papers that we've basically everyone in the lab has read is your Haruno and Frith 2010 Nature Neuroscience paper. And uh, yeah, I thought maybe, I mean, I wanted to ask about kind of neuroeconomics and um, the kind of, let's say, neuroscience of, yeah, of economic games and that kind of stuff. And I guess uh, that paper kind of plays into that a bit. I was curious, um, like one thing that I always find slightly difficult is that it seems to me that economists and psychologists and neuroscientists have, there's something fundamentally different about the way they approach and look at things. Yes, But they do very similar things and I haven't necessarily quite figured out what it is. Um, So I'm curious, like how, what's the difference here between the two fields or approaches? Well, yes, I mean, the most obvious difference, which is not quite relevant to your question, of course, is that psychologists were perfectly happy to deceive people. (laughs) And the economists think this is wrong to the extent that they will not include psychology students in their experiments for fear that they've had experience of being deceived, which is quite interesting. I guess the main difference is that, I mean, I had an interesting chat a long time ago with a very eminent economist in Oxford and I was saying, doesn't it worry you that people don't behave in the way that your classic model says they should? Says they, they, and he says, no, not in the least, because my, our models are not about how people do behave. Our models are about people, how people should behave, which is a very different sort of question. And also that they seem to be very, no- yes, in that sense, they're very normative. I mean, I think psychologists are much more interested in putting people in situations and seeing what happens. 
And I think the economists are much more interested in, in um, I mean, I can't remember we put it somewhere in our academic book, what the difference was, that they're much more interested in having a very clear model. Yeah, I think or in, in this book, I think you said they're much more interested in the strategies people choose, whereas psychologists are interested in how they make the decision. Yeah, yeah. Broader sense. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that, that there's, there is this kind of divide, but that to some extent also it's, I think, a slightly false divide because, you know, I think economists kind of say if these are the utilities you have, then you're going to make this decision. And psychologists is more about like figuring out where the utility comes from. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's, I mean, that's very interesting because of the sort of Bayesian view you can see. You can, so the one story was that people are irrational because they're not choosing the best option. And then the Bayesians come in and say, oh, well, yes, it's all a matter of what the priors are. So you can just, the danger with that is you can always show that somebody is rational <laughs> if you can yeah. work out what the, what the priors would have to be. And I think that's quite an interesting dichotomy there. So, I mean, Chris Summerfield in Oxford has written about how you can show that the ignoring the base rate is perfectly rational in most situations or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I need to read more of his papers. He has lots of really interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, did you, I'm curious, like how much, I mean, it seems to be that lots of, that you're very interested in talking to people from different disciplines. Yes. I think there was one, I think this might have been in the BPS interview you did if, 10 years ago, or something like that. Um, I think you said something like, when you did your PhD with Hans Eisenk, he didn't, he, did, he said, don't talk to the... Uh, whatever it was, like people doing something slightly different? Well, it's, it's virtually, we had two corridors for clinical psychologists and experimental psychologists, and I finished up in the experimental corridor and never really spoke to the clinical psychologist, but I once said it would be very interesting to talk to him as a physiologist, and he said, no, no, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it seems to me that you're kind of the opposite, right? You like talking yeah. to people from different disciplines. So I'm curious, like when talking to people from economics, I mean, was it ever difficult because of, uh, common words but different approaches oh well uh, yes i mean you just have to do your homework a bit but i mean i mean certainly talking to behavioral economists i mean i've talked to people like ernst fair and that was absolutely fine and um my friend bahadur barami who i did a lot of work with did some work with um ken binmore who's a hardline game theoretician you know, and has a very low opinion of Bayesians, but I mean, it's still possible. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I'm also really interested in and want, want to get kind of going. Um, but yeah, it's funny, we, we published this, or we submitted a paper and got, uh, which is like vaguely game theoretic, although for me it's a psychological paper that uses game theory, and we just got completely destroyed by someone from game theory, because like, this is all irrelevant, we've known this for like 15 well, years. Well, that's, that's the trouble, yeah. yeah. I mean, when... <laughs> I, I was at All Souls for a while, and um, Celia Hayes had done a very nice paper with stone, paper, scissors, showing that people imitate. That you can't suppress your tendency to imitate, so that you. So it's you do rock than I more likely to do rock the next one. No, no, at the same, more or less at the same time, because you can see it happening out there. Oh, I see. Okay. I mean, that's how you must have seen. There's this wonderful Japanese video of a computer that can beat everybody at stone, paper, scissors, and that's because it can recognize what it's going to be so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so just from, like, seeing what you're going to do? or Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. There was, yeah, no, there's a, there's a different game I thought you were going to mention, which is 
this is related more to volition, which I guess we'll talk about later. And I have, unfortunately, I don't know what it is. Um, I have to ask um, Aaron Shorger again, but he showed it to me once, which is this game where you have to choose A or B, you know, you just press between two buttons. And basically, if the game predicts correctly what you're going to do next, then you win. Uh, then, then it wins. And if you can fool it, then you win. And it's yes. just impossible to beat that thing. That's the hide and seek game, effectively. Yeah, but it's just like it's funny, like how how difficult it is to basically not be yeah, correctly not predicted. That's right. Yeah, but Celia Hayes had published this paper, and then there's somebody else at also at the time, Vince Crawford, who's a hardline game theorist, and he said, "No, this was all wrong. You hadn't done it properly." So they had to do it again properly with you know big rewards and only two possibilities, which so you have to do turn it into the. But you would, they were using hand movements, so you would still get the imitation effect. And they got exactly the same result, I'm pleased to say, yeah. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I could talk a bit more about interacting with widely different people and escaping from Isaac and so on. I mean, the first thing that happened is I went into a group studying schizophrenia, and there you had no choice but to interact with widely different people because... It was a sort of biological psychiatry unit, and it had one or two people from each of the possible disciplines. No, psychology, neuroanatomy, comparative psychology, um, biochemistry, which then turned into molecular genetics. So I, we were having coffee every day with eight different disciplines or something. And then brain imaging is very similar, because when you go into brain imaging, you need a physicist, you need a neuroanatomist, you need a psychologist to think about what tasks to do, and you need Carl Friston to work out how to analyze all this data. So it's again, handy to have him <laughs> sitting around. <laughs> and of course, when I went to Aarhus, one of the main reasons for going there was precisely because we were then going, started off as an interacting minds group, but we were, the head of it was an anthropologist who got into brain imaging. And then there was, of course, Peter Wust, who's a double bass player, they were political scientists. They were even we had the people from the theology department were involved in that. And in fact, fascinating, the one group that was not interested in Aarhus were the psychologists. <laughs> really, why not? They, I mean, they were. They seemed to be very much self-contained, and they were mostly training. What do you call it? Um, people who were going to you know applied psychology of various kinds. So it was a, and less interested in research. I mean, I've always been into research for research's sake. Rather than, a, I mean, but but I guess you, you did start off working in, like, directly with patients, right? Yes, I mean, I trained as a clinical psychologist, but that at that time, as that was my way back into research, having not got a good enough degree. <laughs> Why not? I don't or really know. Not studious <laughs> enough? <or? laughs> probably not. <laughs> probably not studious enough. Um Nowadays, of course, it's completely the opposite. And if you want to get into clinical psychology, you have to get a PhD first or something like that. But, yeah. And they very rapidly decided that they said, yes, yes, you're, you're jolly good, but we think you shouldn't see patients. You should be doing research. Do you think that was the correct? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, uh, in, I think, in the book again, that um, you said something like, the happiest years of research for me was um, those years working directly in the hospital. Um, yes. I think you mentioned it somewhere. I'm curious uh, why. Like, what was? What was oh no, the reason that? that was that was again that was with when I was with the MRC, and it was partly because we had all these different people, which I was who I was closely collaborating with from all these different disciplines. But at that point, we were studying schizophrenia, 
and the wonderful thing about it was that my lab, so-called, was in the middle of the acute psychiatric unit. It was very funny because it was specially built for us, and they built a lab, and they so they assumed that a lab has to have gas taps and funny water taps with bends in. <laughs> you mean like almost like a chemistry, like kind a chemistry of, lab, uh, wet lab or something. Yeah. And that meant, of course, that um, I had extraordinary access to patients. I mean, to the extent that, of course, that being a patient is extremely boring. So they would come and knock on the door and say, "Have you got any?" <laughs> Anything to do. <laughs> so we did some great work. And then, of course, we moved eventually, which we'll come back to, no doubt, to the Institute of Neurology. And it became quite impossible to see patients. Just practically? or Just practically. But, I mean, they had I think they had three psychiatric beds in the whole place or something like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, was it just the... I mean, I get just the ease of getting participants, and in this case, even an unusual population. Yes, getting a very unusual population. We were able, because drug trials were going on at that time, there was often a, they would, you would have a placebo arm, so you could actually see drug-free patients, which is almost impossible these days. And I guess some people think it's unethical, but I'm not convinced about that. Yeah, so I guess the kind of, it seemed to me like when I see people who do clinical work um, or work with patients, it always seems to me that there's so much like administrative stuff and getting the patients is really difficult. So I guess basically you had all of that largely taken care of. And Well, that's right, because, I mean, my main collaborator there was Eve Johnson, who was a psychiatrist who basically run the unit. And if you want to get patients, you really have to be working with someone like that who is keen to be doing that sort of research. Yeah. I mean, so how do you – it's funny that – to me that you know i know you mainly from your work at ucl at the phil and you know social neuroscience etc etc but you know you had like these 20 years or whatever of <laughs> schizophrenia research before that um i'm curious like how did you yeah how and why did you make that shift from i think you said also this was hammersmith hospital first or something which yes, is you right. know quite far away within london but quite far away from queen square um, so, yes, yeah. well, that's the trouble with London. Um, the reason, basically, the, the the schizophrenia unit did extremely well, but it came to the end of its life in various ways, and they actually, for complicated reasons, mainly political, we were in something called the Clinical Research Centre in Northwood Park Hospital, which had um, about 20 different MRC research units in it. And they decided to close the whole thing down, as I say, mainly for political reasons. And we had to decide what to do then. And the unit was effectively disbanded. And at right at, at, at the last part of the time on the research on schizophrenia, we started doing scanning. So we had, I think we did the first CAT scan, as it was in those days, of patients. And then we also were doing some gamma scanning with gamma cameras and things. What's that? Um, oh, it's one of the very early cameras that's looking at radioactive okay. substances. So again, like you give a radioactive trace yeah, to Yeah, that's patients. right, yeah. Okay. But it's a very primitive one where you just have a thing that goes round and round. But we also did a very early PET scanning study, and you could only do that at the Hammersmith Hospital. And um, so when we came to be disbanded, one of my options was to go to the Hammersmith Hospital and join the cyclotron unit, as it then was, which was extremely exciting because this was enabled me to do PET scanning when it actually first became known and possible. 
So when was this, roughly? This was in the 70s. And there is there is a famous paper by Michael Posner and... Um, it's Mike Posner and... Um, God, I can't remember his name, but he was... So Posner was a famous cognitive psychologist, is, I should say, and then the chap he was collaborating with was a radiographer who had started doing PET scanning. And they had a couple of papers in Nature and Science, basically going from the traditional cognitive neuropsychology, which is where you have a box and arrow diagram of um, functions and brain areas mapped onto it by studying patients with lesions, and they were able to do the same picture, except they were now studying healthy volunteers in a PET scanner. And I thought this was absolutely wonderful. And luckily, they took me on, and that's where it all. That's so. That's that was how the shift happened. So we really started doing scanning, and this became possible. And that, of course, is where we. I got together with Carl Friston and various other. Oh, so they were all already at the Hammersmith Hospital. I think he arrived shortly afterwards. In the 70s? No, in the 80s, right? Or when was... Yeah, yeah. I can't remember when. I mean, the, the first schizophrenia paper with CAT scanning was 1976. That's right. And I think we were doing some pit scanning, yes, in 91. So it must have been in the late 80s. Okay, okay. I didn't know. So basically all of, like, some most of the start people who started kind of the... Well, the already, functioning yes. Imlin Laboratory were together but at a different building. Yes, so in the Hammersmith, yes. I mean, so there was Carl arrived, Elena McGuire arrived, Kathy Price arrived, Ray Dolan arrived, who, and that was the core of what became the film later on. I mean, all set up by Richard Fracovia, of course. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that all of you were that early together. I thought it was the kind of thing where... The thing had been, you know, the centre had been created at UCL and then people just... No, 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 I think that's why it worked, because we were already working together. The the newcomer was Bob Turner, who was the person who knew about fMRI. So I'm curious, like, what did you first think when you heard of fMRI scanning this new opportunity? Because I think you alluded somewhere to it that it was also kind of controversial in the beginning or people didn't quite believe it. Well, that's right. I mean, So what was kind of your... I thought it was very exciting. I mean, the problem with doing PET scanning is you have to inject people with radiation, and the health and safety became more and more strict. So during the time we were doing it, first of all, you know, no women of childbearing age, and then you were allowed to do it once a year, and then you were only allowed to do it once or something. And there's a nice graph you could draw. I mean, I actually have a certificate somewhere, which allows me to give radiation to people, which I've never... Still today, still. <laughs> but you have a nice little graph where you know you have an amount of radiation along the bottom and bad side effects up the side, and there were really only two points on it. There was a Hiroshima up there somewhere, <laughs> yeah. and a PET scan down there, and we didn't know whether it was a straight line or a yeah. that sort of curve or that sort of. Curve. <laughs> okay, so you needed something that was yeah, slightly. Yeah. That allowed you to test more people more frequently, or yes, exactly. And and of course, in the early days, which is again a sort of slightly comical story, the the way to measure blood flow properly, you had to have an intravenous line. So it's not just, and obviously you have to stick something in to stick the radioactive oxygen. Yes, so you had to have an interarterial line, which is not very pleasant. 
like in the in your head or just anything? no 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 into the arm but it has to be into the artery rather than the vein which is much more dangerous and another of my bases that i've had i have personally had an inter-arterial line inserted by carl friston <laughs> who of course started off as a psychiatrist and medic <laughs> yeah did he do a good job he did a good job but he rapidly proved that you didn't need to do this <laughs> you get just as good an answer Yes, the problem with fMRI in the very early days was that people didn't quite know what to do about movement. Mm -hmm. Like head movement? of head, head, Basically head movement, which is very difficult to stop. And um, the political problem was that the we had the cyclotron unit which was doing PET scanning, and then next door in the Hammersmith there was the MRI unit that was doing structural MRI. And they, were, in particular, were deeply suspicious of functional MRI, and they had done a study demonstrating that you could, using visual stimuli, you could show that the sort of movements of the head caused by every time the light flashed on and off could account for the activity you apparently saw in the visual cortex. And this got quite a lot of... I mean, some people believed this, and certainly the MRC was very worried about this. And in, there was a meeting I, we had about this problem where people came from all over the world, I'm particularly from the States, where they were doing more functional MRI. And it all became a bit dodgy because they were saying it's all very well to say, you know, the, the movement of the back of the head when you flash things on and off can cause this. But what? About, why is it that we're also getting activity in the auditory cortex from sound and activity in the motor cortex from moving your fingers? It seems a little bit far-fetched. <laughs> to yeah, say all that you've got different movement disorders and luckily at that point the Wellcome Trust basically decided that they want to have an imaging department so they didn't have any in the UK well mm, I guess Wellcome no. Trust is for the UK and so yeah, they just didn't yeah, have one no, we didn't have one so we got and whereas the MRC was worried about it so we and Richard Vicariat really moved in on that and put in a wonderful proposal and we got the money with PET and MRI and initially, I was using PET, and, but they eventually worked out how to do the MRI, which is obviously much better in many ways, although you still can't do things like dopamine and so on. You know. mm -hmm. yeah. But the new department is then the one that was at Queen Square? Or is yes. That and that was delayed for a year because the building that we're in, which used to be a nurse's home school, St. Joseph's house or something, they had lost the deed, so no one knew who it belonged to. <laughs> <laughs> so there had to be an act of parliament to, yeah. in case somebody turned up. And did did anyone turn up and say, this no, is my no, building? No. Okay. So that was delayed for a year, and, but then completely rebuilt inside, keeping the front. And that, that property would be worth a lot of money, though. In I guess London, no, right? yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> That's not a, a, a cheap property to lose. Yeah. <laughs> But I think that's the reason for the success of the film. Nearly all of us had been working together before it even was thought of, and also during that year in which we couldn't move into the new building. I'm very keen on things working bottom-up rather than top-down if you want to have a good unit of that kind. I mean, it's very similar with the, in Aarhus, where we started off with an interacting mind group, and we now they now have an interacting mind centre, and that, again, was because a lot of people being already there and working together. Yeah. So by bottom-up, you mean this kind of, there's already a group that wants yeah, to expand yeah, yeah. rather than someone's... But I guess... Yeah. So I guess the Wellcome Trust sent, said, like, we want to have a centre, but you said, 
we already are center or yes and we just i say we had to add we had to show that we had some mri expertise as well which is bringing bob turner and some of his people mm -hmm. you mentioned somewhere that i think again in this bps interview i saw um by, by the way for people new to the podcast i'll put links to anything i mentioned basically or that chris mentions papers interviews whatever uh, in the description of the podcast uh that what was it one of the because you were basically the first group to have access to an mri scanner you could basically do whatever you wanted and get it published in nature science and that that then <laughs> <laughs> and that that stopped at some yes, point stopped. yes i mean one um, of the first papers that was published had only four subjects <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Does does that does, actually do the early studies still hold up, or is it because it's, I guess it's changed so much since then, right? The whole um... yes. No, I think I mean the the basic the sort of vision motor auditions type stuff holds up. I'm quite. I claim that we did this very early theory of mind study using a PET scanner at the Hammersmith, which I think was published in '95, and that. Basically, I mean, one of the things we claimed there was medial prefrontal cortex, and that has held up quite yeah, well. very well. Yeah, and there's a nice story about that because we had a we had a grand opening conference and banquet, and various people came over from the states and other countries, and we gave talks, and I gave the first talk about the you know the theory of mind area in the brain, and uh, before it had been published, and um, Many years later, one of the people, eminent people who was there at the meeting said, we all thought you were mad. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to find, you know, specific brain areas was such a woolly concept. Yeah. 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 I mean, did, did you think you were mad at the time, or did you think it was the most sensible thing to do? Or Well, that was, that was again, that's the sort of start of the next step in the story, because um, my wife, Uta, was one of the earliest people who demonstrated this theory of mind problem in people with autism, with Simon Baron-Cohen and so on. And in particular, they had shown that this seemed to be very specific. So the same people who were very bad at mental causality, which is what theory of mind is about, were perfectly good at physical causality, although in many ways computations are just as complex, if you like. And you could also show that people with Down syndrome did not have this specific problem. So the the question there, it's suggested that there was a plausibly a dedicated brain system that was being damaged while other bits were remaining intact rather than being a general problem. I mean, this is in the days when autism was still strongly associated with what we used to call mental retardation. So it was a sort of... Just kind of general yeah, disorder. Yeah, okay. yeah. So that was the reason for scanning it very early because we had all the tests and so on and it, it seemed to an interesting idea to go into. And that, of course, is immediately starting to talk about social cognition. And roughly, at the, and also at that time, we were studying people with schizophrenia and showing that they were bad at theory, so-called theory of mind tests. And uh, But we had the idea that this is for the opposite reason. So you could say that the people with autism treat people as if they don't have mental states or they can't work out what they are, whereas the people with particularly people with positive schizophrenia and paranoia think they do have mental states, but then make the wrong inferences about them. So it's sort of 
over-mentalizing and under-mentalizing. And in a sense, that's why we started. It's interesting because Uta and I didn't really work together until we retired, which was, of course, a long time ago. Um, but it started because of these joint interests in autism and schizophrenia, and maybe they're both problems about social interactions. Although I guess isn't the so I don't uh, I'm not at all basically read in the schizophrenia literature, but isn't it seems to me that the what you just said about the over mentalizing schizophrenia is more a general problem of inference in the brain or well no that's very interesting people have done that because they had well, yes that was one story you know it's just irrational but they but actually people with particularly the positive symptoms can be jolly good at um, making inferences it's just i think you can make a case that it's more to do with the social inferences and it's particular and uh, yes i remember there's a nice story a funny story again one of the things that people with schizophrenia do is called jumping to conclusions which is basically you have this classic computational test. So you have two jars, one with mostly yellow beads and one with mostly blue beads. And then you're told this person is going to pick a series of beads from one of these jars with replacement, and you have to decide whether it's the blue bead jar or the yellow bead jar. And the question is how many do you have to remove before you make your decision? And people with schizophrenia make their decisions earlier than controls, hence jumping to conclusions. So basically you get like two yellow ones, you're like, yeah, that's definitely something one like, of yeah. the main, yeah. And um, this was presented a long time ago when Geoffrey Hinton happened to be in the audience. Okay. This is not my work on schizophrenia. And he got up and said, yes, but I mean, they were perfectly right. That is the point where you should say... <laughs> <laughs> So it's the controls of being too cautious. Yeah. Right. I, was, so, I see, see. So he basically pointed out, like, from a, yeah, from a computational perspective, they were actually just correct, yeah, whereas yeah. everyone else is. Okay. <laughs> and a friend of mine did a sort of similar thing. He was doing the three-card trick. Is it, well, anyway, you have these three cups, and there's a ball hidden under one, and you constantly move it about, and then people have to try and find the ball. And, of course, what you've done is there isn't any ball anymore. <laughs> and his question is, how long do people go on before they realize that there isn't a ball anymore? And he said he's shown that experimental psychologists go on much longer than clinical psychologists. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah I'd maybe like to go slightly back and talk about the um, – kind of whilst we were doing a bit of the history and you doing schizophrenia, I'm curious – so if I remember correctly, there was, I think maybe from reading Daniel Wagner's book or something like that, there were like some cases of schizophrenia and abnormalities of volition or something like that in them. Is I'm curious, because you were also interested in volition, um, did that come from that? That came from was that. The no, interest in volition certainly came from schizophrenia, where one of the classic so-called Schneiderian symptoms is the delusion of control, where the patient thinks or feels, however you like to describe it, says that, you know, my actions are not being made by me. It's some external force. And these can be quite trivial actions, like combing your hair or drinking out of a cup. And um, I was trying to think about how one might... So when I... This goes back into what we were talking about a bit earlier. So one story was that the symptoms of schizophrenia are just irrational. You can't understand them. 
which I didn't like. And I was trying to say, well, what can what could go wrong that could give you a symptom like this? And I became very interested. There's this phenomenon of corollary discharge, which was goes right back to Helmholtz, but Sperry and people like that were talking about it, which is what Helmholtz pointed out is that why is it when you move your eyes, you don't see the world jumping about all over the place? And the answer was that you can predict in advance what's going to happen because the, the, the message that goes to the muscles to make your eyes move is also sent to the perceptual system to correct for this. And the same happens with hand movements and all sorts of things. One idea was that you can have a delusion of control if something goes wrong with this system. This enables you to detect if, if something happens that was not due to your movement, then you know it's caused externally. So if something goes wrong with the system, they might, might start getting signals saying that what they intend, that this, what they're seeing is not connected properly to their movement. Now, somebody else thought about this just before I did and published it, which is a bit sad, Owen Feinberg. But anyway, I came up with that idea, and then we did some experiments that seemed to show that this indeed might be the case. And eventually it led to the tickling experiment, which Sarah Jane Blakemore did. Because the idea is the reason you can't tickle yourself is because you can predict from your movements exactly what you're going to feel. And it had been shown that this is probably true because if you break the connection, you can start, it feels much stronger. And Sarah Jane did this thing with Daniel Walpert where you have a robot which you're tickling yourself through. And if you put in delays of 200 milliseconds between your movement and the feeling, you start to feel it more. Which is really not that much. Yeah. It's not that much. And it's, it's sufficiently short that you don't notice the delay, interestingly, yeah. Yeah. consciously. And then she did the same thing with schizophrenic patients and showed that, yes, indeed, the ones who have delusions of control can tickle themselves. And that's where that came from. I lost the original question, but that was... Uh, uh, yeah, it was basically whether, whether your interest in evolution came from... I also, I guess, interacting with the patients and whether that was like a common thing you saw. But, I mean, that, again, leads you straight into the question of volition because, um, in a sense, you know it's you. That's how you distinguish between your movements and other things happening in the outside world because your predictions of what's going to happen work. So if your predictions of what's going to happen don't work, then you would start saying it wasn't me that did it. So this was the delusion of control where you, you lose your sense of volition because of this feedback system is the idea. Oh, yeah, by the way, a really random question that uh, I have like lots and lots of really random questions because there's, especially in the book, there's just like occasional things you throw out without explaining it. Um, but why did you start walking with a limp when you started walking with uh, Marc Chonol? Oh, because he has a limp. And so you just accidentally <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, yes, I think if you And it's because the, the, the steps are no longer equal. So if you're trying to keep in step with someone, you will automatically adopt the limp, <laughs> the effect of the limp. Yeah. <laughs> did, did did he think you were making fun of him? I, I, no, I think he did, he doesn't notice. <laughs> okay, okay. Always just used to it. Yeah. I mean, we had a similar story with somebody we went to visit in hospital who had throat cancer, and he could only whisper, and we all start whispering. <laughs> he got very annoyed with us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I guess it's, I guess like especially whispering is such a social signal to like turn it down because you know whatever you yeah. have to be quiet. <laughs> yeah. I have uh, the overarching question, kind of that I'm asking, is basically career advice for 
people like <laughs> me, people who's, who say, well, Chris Frizz definitely had uh, quite an impressive career and I'd like to have as many findings as he had, or, you know, at least there's a lot I can probably learn from you. So that's kind of the overarching question. Yeah, maybe um, to to kind of make this slightly more specific. I mean, so you mentioned one thing in the in the book: the difference between explorers and exploiters, and that you and Uta see yourself as explorers, at least in science. Uh, yeah, maybe can you first like talk about that distinction there? Um, what exactly do you mean by that? Kind of what what are explorers and who are what are exploiters in? Well, no, I mean the classic science. version, as I'm sure you know, is the exploiters do what is best from what they have learned so far. And the explorers always wonder whether there's something out there that would make them behave differently, which they haven't found out yet. And um, I always talk about the bees. So the, only when you're searching for food, if you know where the food is, you exploit that and you go there, but there's always the danger that it will run out and then you won't know where to go. So you need the explorer bees who are constantly looking for new food sources and I, I think that's really i mean it's all about whether you just use the information you've already got or whether you want to find new information and i guess that would be the sort of equivalent in the science field but my own one of my favorite papers which was when i was doing my phd was discovered because i was you know went to the library as one did in those days and read some journal as one did in those days and found some completely irrelevant paper that was much more interesting which led me into doing Fourier analysis of hand movements and things in tracking tasks, which was originally had been used for eye movements, and then I was applying this to hand movements instead. And I guess that was, I mean, a sort of example of exploring. And, then, and I guess from then on, I was always interested in not doing quite the thing I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. I, so, I sometimes annoy my supervisor, I think, by saying like, I, I mean, I, in the first year of my PhD, I once spent like two days reading a law review article and telling him about it. It's like, that's very good. <laughs> you seem to be very interested in this law review article. What does that have to do with what we're doing? But I think that's much more difficult to get away with, with the d problems in getting grants and so on. Because, I mean, I was very lucky in the first 10 years of my post-PhD work, I was on one-year contracts, which the people... Was in the, that stressful? Well, no, I mean, I wasn't collecting them. Somebody, I mean, the head of the department was collecting them. But did you know, like, basically every year, it's like, I might have to find well, a new I job? I sort of in. vaguely knew that, but this was in the idea of the days, of course, when the universities were rapidly expanding and jobs were easy. And then I moved to the MRC, and at that time, you had these units which basically belonged to the director. So once you were in a unit, you didn't have to do anything. The director did everything in terms of getting money. <laughs> yeah. So I was very lucky in that sense. But I certainly always wanted to go slightly off field. And as I said earlier, that was one of the reasons for going to Denmark, because we were interested interacting with all sorts of different people there. And I now have a desk, of course, in the philosophy department at Senate House. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to me, especially in in Aarhus or whatever it's called, yeah. um, or Aarhus, or yeah, that they. It seems to me, at least, at least from the kind of stuff that I'm interested in, that they are also um, much more collaborating with people who psychologists usually, the kind of psychology I read, usually don't collaborate with because I yeah. guess we're used to like lots of um, interdisciplinary stuff, like with computer scientists, biologists, yeah. physicists, yeah. mathematicians, whatever. But I rarely meet someone who's worked with someone from the humanities. Right, yeah. I feel like that's much more rare, at least in the kind of 
well, computational neuroscience stuff that I read, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm very, I've just finished, but I was, for the last five years it was, I was chair of this Apex Committee, which is has a very small amount of money from the Leverhulme Trust, which is specifically aimed at interdisciplinary research, which has to bring together the, I can't remember what there is, it the Royal Academy of Engineering, the Royal Society, and the British Academy, which is the humanities side. So the, the collaborate, they have to be collaborations between at least two of these three academies to get the money, although you only get very small amounts of money. And we did do fairly well. We get quite a few who go across all three academies, and we get quite a few between the humanities and Royal Society. We have, last time we didn't get any between the humanities and the engineers, but we would like to. <laughs> Yeah, but um, I'm curious, like with the explore explorers and exploiters, do you like how do you balance that? Because you know, to some extent, I feel like I can come up with a new experiment every day, but then I'll have several years of not actually doing anything. (laughs) So how do you do that? You just like at some point say like I have to decide on something and then finish it. Yes, you have to. Well, you can certainly start things, and sometimes you find that they don't work. So you probably have to be quite good at dropping things as well. And you, I guess you have to be lucky in choosing the right ones and have a nose for when it's actually going to work. How do you get that? Just by experience? Mm, or? I, I guess it's by experience and the feels of things. But the, and the other, I mean, I would certainly say you should always be a subject in your own experiments because you get a much better idea of what's really going on. I mean, I'm always worried about do these people who are doing the experiment think it's the same experiment that you do <laughs> yeah <laughs> often but, not yeah <laughs> you know, particularly if you're working with patients yeah and you, yes and you need lots of maths yeah that's gonna i was gonna ask like what's some skills everyone should learn i mean you in the other interview with the bps i think you mentioned maths and um programming yeah because i got into programming in 1965 or something, when we got our first Link 8 computer. And um, I did maths as a student a bit. So I used to be the person who did the maths in the unit, as it were, until Carl Friston came along. And then, <laughs> and then I, he took and then he t- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So what, what were you then, You were if you weren't the person who did the maths anymore? What was your... I was the person who suggested to him to try to persuade him to do impossible things, which he then... <laughs> Did (laughs) (laughs) come on, Carl. (laughs) Um, yeah, but uh, I mean, yeah, I definitely agree with the maths. It also feels like I wish I'd started it earlier and did it more consistently. I mean, I'm not naturally particularly interested in it. I always, I I can, like, I think I can be interested in maths for about five minutes and then I just get vaguely bored. But, um, no, I guess I still have this. I'm still, I'm, I'm not so much these days, but I certainly had an obsessive interest in data and looking at data and doing things with data. I guess where the maths comes in and the programming. So yes, when I retired, I wanted to learn MATLAB programming. I did manage to write a program that will play stone, paper, scissors or hide and seek or something with you at various levels of sophistication. Wait, but what what language were you programming before that? In MATLAB. Oh, I thought you said you learned that when you were... Oh, yes, learning. before that. I, well, I started off in Fortran 4. No, the earliest stuff was in machine code. Well, there weren't any of there. Then Fortran 4. Then a bit of basic, and then C. C++ I could never 
understand properly. So was that the stuff that was, I was just like, especially like in the 80s and 90s when you do neuroimaging, was that kind of stuff with? Well, that's where Carl, that's where Carl came in. Okay, because I guess SBM was in MATLAB from the beginning, right? Or... Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the, yes, I mean, if you're going to do brain stuff, you really ought to know a bit of neuroanatomy, and that is still very weak in my case. And we depended on people like Dick Passim, who actually knew about neuroanatomy. Yeah, so neuro neuroanatomy, programming, and maths. Uh, yeah. I guess in maths, just the basics, right? Like with mm. any algebra, probability theory, calculus, yeah. Yeah. or yeah. any, I guess, the fancy stuff only if if relevant. Like, yes, I mean, in a sense, MATLAB takes care of some of it for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, <laughs> yeah, it's the whole thing. Like, you learn how to do some sort of thing, but then you can just put it into Mathematica or MATLAB or whatever, and just spits it out. I mean, the other thing that certainly Dick Passimir always used to say, and I tended to agree with there's a danger particularly in brain imaging that you have these packages that actually do anything do everything for you when you just press a button and um we would always say you should look at the raw data well that sometimes that's quite difficult to do yeah 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 i definitely but i definitely agree like you can just press a button and then and in some sense it can be really useful but also I guess it's a bit like like the way statistics is often taught in psychology, which is yeah, like, oh, yeah. you just do a t-test and they get a p-value, and then you, that's all you care about. And you don't actually think about like what's going on, what the test is actually for, and all these kind of things. Um, I hope you don't don't mind me ending on this question. Uh, but there was fairly early on in the book uh, you wrote. Oh, the, the superhero character of Chris Frith said, um, occasionally I wonder, have I wasted my life? Even such a little thing as a working definition of consciousness is ever out of grasp. Um, and then it seemed like the, the superhero character of Uta Frith tried to console you a bit. Um, but yeah, I'm curious, like, how do you, I mean, and then the second quote, maybe, which is much more optimistic later on, is, um, isn't science marvelous? We've devoted years of our lives to trying to understand things literally nobody understands. And we basically know we're going to fail in our lifetimes, at least. So I don't know, I mean, especially asking because sometimes it feels like, you know, you, you spend so much, like, you being I spend time, um, you know, you do all this research, and then you have this, like, minuscule seeming finding that comes out at the end. And, like, was it worth all the effort and all that kind of stuff. So, I'm curious, how do you think about that? Oh, I think it, it, yes, I, think, I still think it is worth all the effort, and that's probably because I can't remember how much effort it was. Um, <laughs> and I'm still interested very much in consciousness, even though I don't know what it is. And I know, but I, there are lots of theories that I know are definitely wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So making progress by exclusion. Yeah, yeah. But I guess, yes, it is, you have to forget the ones that didn't work. Or just kind of assume that, you know, a certain percentage is just not going to lead to anything and yeah. focus on, I mean, I guess in your case, quite a few very cool papers. Well, I've been lucky. I mean, Peter Meadow had this book called The Art of the Soluble or something like that, which is what um, it's partly to do with that. But you have to have a you have to have an intuition about what's soluble and what's not soluble, I guess. But I guess consciousness seems like one of those questions. I, that... I think consciousness has become more soluble in the last several years, actually. So almost like the soluble, the unsoluble can become soluble if you just yeah, hack yeah, it yeah. long enough. But usually, it's it's a, you achieve this by redefining what it is. Yeah. 
Right. <laughs> because in the olden days, life and consciousness used to be much the same thing, as far as I could see. I mean, I'm always fascinated with Frankenstein's monster in the original Mary Shelley version. Is it hyper-conscious and very clever? Yeah, I actually read that like a year ago or something by chance, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a weird book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really weird book. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the monster's completely self-aware of everything it's just a human right I mean, yeah, yeah it has the same emotions and feels ashamed of the way and it's it only relatively recently and i think that life and consciousness got sort of split and in fact there are still these pan psychics who think everything is conscious but that's clearly nonsense yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah um Actually, whilst we were just uh, talking about books, uh, one thing I wanted to ask is, uh, it said early, early on in your book, uh, you say uh, you were really into 1960s sci-fi books and detective novels. Uh, so I'm curious, any recommendations there? Oh, well, I mean, the, um, the science fiction, I'm still fairly obsessed with Philip K. Dick, but was particularly influential. And he's always talking about hidden realities and things. And, of course, when I was reading him, he was not famous, but now he has most, all these films are made of his stuff. And I guess detective stories are a bit similar because it's, a, you know, you're discovering, you're given lots of data and you have to discover what is the model that fits. I mean, Agatha Christie is still the person who can do this most brilliantly, and I'm not really into the new people quite so much. I mean, Edmund Crispin I used to be very fond of, but it was a long time ago and he didn't write very many What's what's the book there? I don't, I'm not familiar. They're, they're detective stories, but the detective is an academic, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I feel like with Philip K. Dick. I mean, you said like he's the guy who wrote the what's it called? Do Android Sheep? Yes, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Yes, uh, that way. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, and that was the basis for Blade Runner, right? Yeah, yeah. And I feel like I have to probably watch that again because I watched that when I don't know, like ten years ago or something, and I just didn't get what was interesting about it but when oh, really? i hear like <laughs> i think also you mentioned like it's about like what's the difference between a human and a robot and these kind of things i think maybe that stuff just like went over my head <laughs> something like that i'm not sure but there's a real possibility it did um yeah i guess i've kind of run through most of my questions or uh, now i'd just be bringing up more random topics <laughs> Um, so unless you have anything you want to add, I don't know, anything you want to tell the world? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, the, the the graphic book I'm very pleased with, but I'm slightly disappointed that it seems to be being perceived as a graphic novel and not as a popular science book. Right, the difference being like a graphic novel is, is just a, I mean, not just, but it's a story. Yes, which section is. it goes in the bookshops and that sort of thing, yeah. Uh -huh. Who reviews Do you it? think though it might it might sell more copies in the graphic novel section than the or popular science? Or no, no, I want it. I think it's doing okay in the graphic novel section, but it's it's not getting into the popular science section. I mean, it definitely is the popular yeah. science. But I mean, there's yeah, no yeah, yeah. doubt about it. Yeah. So if any owners of bookshops are listening, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> please, right. Yes. Please put it in the appropriate category. <laughs> <laughs>